You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today's episode comes to us in conjunction with our partnership with Nexus. This episode is quite the special one. Unlike anything we've done on the show before, a father-daughter team, Tom and Alden Stoner. Tom is the co-founder of Nature Sacred, which is a nonprofit organization that's growing a network of urban sanctuaries to strengthen the resilience of communities. Alden, who I met through Nexus, is the CEO of Nature Sacred. In this episode, you'll hear the beauty of a synergistic relationship between father and daughter and how the two came together with similar motivations to build strong communities and elevate the human spirit. The two eloquently weave their unique stories together, emphasizing the journey above all else. I deeply admire how Tom and Alden ground their work with the intention of experiencing and cultivating joy, and I think you will too. So with that, drop in with Tom and Alden Stoner. Hi, welcome Alden and Tom. It's great to have you guys here. Great to, to be, be here. here. And where are you guys calling in from today? Well, I'm calling from Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, I think Alden's nearby. <laughs> <laughs> calling in for the same place, just down a level. Well, you know what's so cool about this conversation is that you guys are the first one to be calling in from a Zen garden. Can you tell me a little bit on the inspiration for a Zen garden? Because I know it's going to play in well to um, the latter portion of our conversation, but... I do want to um, let the viewers know that you guys are having this conversation with me in the midst of a Zen garden. Well, uh, Zen is a place I've aspired to, to be in uh, my whole life and rarely got to. And uh, my wife and I have a, a what I think is a terrific relationship over 48 years. She was uh, perhaps more advanced than I. So she maybe led me into the Zen garden. But once I got there, I didn't want to leave. So. Um, we created the Zen Garden uh, about 20 years ago, uh, and uh, it, it, we live with it every day, and it, it, it's part of living with intention. Uh, it's part of tur- turning within uh, and not be so overloaded with the st- stimuli that the world is giving us, <clears throat> not only now, but has, has given us. And so um, it's a big part of our life and is absolutely delightful. Alden, so was this part of your um, upbringing? Did did you experience some of this uh, Zen transformation yourself? You know, mine came later. Uh, truthfully, you know, this I'm dating myself now, but 20 years ago was not when I was born. Um, <laughs> we, but we did have gardens around uh, during my upbringing. I we actually out front in the my childhood home we had an apple orchard, and I helped design a logo for Tom or from Stone or Orchard or something. So nature has always been a big piece of our family and how we've spent time together and all that. But um, the Zen garden is really a function of my parents and their, their vision. And I, that being said, Japanese culture and this, this idea of connecting to nature, the art, nature, human connection is something I deeply resonate with and have done a good bit of travel over there, although always want to do more. Um, but it is amazing how quiet you can be once you see the kind of beauty that the Zen garden in particular brings forth. 
Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 put, I put a lot of emphasis in uh, design as well. It's, it's something that continually grows on me. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about this because you guys are really at the source and driving the national interest in creating sacred spaces and in a natural context. And we're going to cover that. You know, I must be honest, I'm, what's, what's really moving through me is this reality that um, it's beautiful seeing both Alden, the daughter, and Tom, the father, you know, having this conversation together with me. And I'd be remiss that if I didn't have feelings moving through me about um, my mom passed away four years ago, my father did 10 years ago, and um, how precious it is just seeing you guys together. Um, and there's a level of preciousness in physical presence that you two are experiencing now, but there's also another preciousness of actually doing life together. And you two have started to do life together, not just now, but it has been going on for a while. Can you take me back to that point where you realize like, wow, dad, or maybe Alden looked at Tom or Tom looked at Alden and said, daughter, um, what happened and where did you guys realize like, you know what, we can do something together here. And what did that moment actually look like and feel like? Wow. That's a, that's a big, big place to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Gina, I have to say it, it's, uh, iterative, like so much of life and especially, uh, the, the journey of father and daughter, um, it's iterative and we have, done different things together over time. And we've worked on some business ventures going back to Stoner Orchard, actually, when I was, you know, 13. We have worked, we've done impact investing together. Um, we have done uh, and worked on Nature Sacred since I was in my, well, I was present when mom and dad first came up with the idea. Um, I was still in the house. And I was asked to be on the board when I was about 24. Five-ish. So that was began that journey of doing something together. And then we've had other sprinkles along the way. But I guess the moment when I looked at dad and said, let's journey in the weeness, um, to use a to, to use a term that you sometimes use, is uh it was in June of 2019. So I had sort of shortcutting the story, but I had moved back to Annapolis after uh, 20 years in Los Angeles with brief stints in London and Mexico. And, you know, there was a lot going on with Nature Sacred, the the nonprofit that I now lead, but but didn't then. I was just on the board then. And there were a lot of incoming inquiries and calls and there's so much happening. And we were in the process of... Um, you know, sunsetting it, finding a legacy place for this work and the projects and the research and all the things that have been done. And, you know, I had my previous career had been about movement building and movement building through story. And I looked at the variety of different things. And I said, there's really something here beyond or in a, at, a, at a higher order level than um, the work that we've done. It's, it's, all of that laid the foundation for what could be. And I put together like a six point PowerPoint slide and dad and I sat out in the Zen garden together. And I said, I have something I want to talk to you about. And I said, you know, I think there's a big opportunity here. And, and truthfully, he was 
uh, we were in the process of finding the legacy plan, but it wasn't landing. And he was experiencing a little bit of some, um, some health issues that were creating some urgency and, uh, or perceived urgency at the time, thankfully, uh, ultimately not urgent, but at the time they were, and it was just a six points deck. And I said, you know, this has to be about joy for us because I can go off and do a lot of things. I had a whole other career that was fun and exhilarating and rewarding and all that. He obviously could do pretty much anything he wanted, you know, with his time and efforts and energy. And I said, so this has to be about joy. And um, the number one thing in there in that equation has to be family. And so that first and foremost, I'm your daughter, you're my father, you know, this is, um, this is what's most precious to, to use that word. And um, we talked for, I don't know, two hours, maybe. And we said, okay, let's do it. And one of the things we we promised was that at each interval, so you know our weekly meetings or monthly, whatever the sort of cadence became, is that our first agenda item was checking in on the joy. How was the how was his joy? How was my joy? Um, where, if any, were their pain points? And that that was really the the highest order for us together. So that's my version of the story. That's when I said, let's do this together. This particular thing. Love it. And Tom, I mean, what's your version? Well, I got to go back a little further and put it in context. I'm now 87 years old. Uh, my father was uh, 66 when I was born. So having a 66, I've only met one other person with an older father. And, uh, you know, he had built something and I came along late in his life unexpectedly. And um the way he treated it was, I was an only child. He said, I want to make a partnership. I want to be a partner with you. To be a partner of a man that old at age eight or something is kind of remarkable. And yet that really stuck with me. Uh, and he did treat me that way. And I did respond to that. And I, 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 it was a point that really grew within me. And so along comes Alden. Fast forward many years, and I said, whoa, uh, there's an opportunity to take whatever gift my father gave me uh, in terms of skill sets and, and perspective uh, and wisdom and share it with another partner. So I looked at her not just as a daughter, uh, I say just as a daughter, wonderfully as a daughter, but, uh, but as a partner, and if she would be willing to accept it. and. Um, that's so. It was a gift beyond uh, to be able to think about that uh, later in my life, and of course we had this common interest, uh, which was uh, the subject. But as you point out earlier, um, the subject is less important than the process here. The joy comes from the relationship and from the, the, uh, the mutual learning and mutual sharing and the adventure of it all, because it is in this case. Uh, adventuresome. It is uh, un, untried ground. And uh, that's what we had a chance to do. Well, I have lots of questions, but I want to stay close to that joy agenda item. How do you know what joy feels like? And how do you know you're really being authentic with yourself? Because sometimes, sometimes it's difficult to actually express, honestly, whether you're experiencing joy. We either make it up for the purposes of, I just need to move on with a certain item. How does that check-in go? 
And how do you know you're sort of being honest with yourself or vice versa? Can you feel into the other one, whether what you're receiving is an authentic representation of how they are feeling at the time? Well, I'll take a stab at that, which is uh, we're both from Iowa. So <laughs> candor is really high <laughs> on the uh, you know list of qualities, I would say, about us. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty much the world's worst liar. Um, so I'm very, a terrible poker player. My, my um, 11th grade physics teacher uh, said to me, I really want to play poker with you, Alden, because I would sit there in the back of a class going, huh? Like, what is he trying to say? Just, it, it's all over my face. And the truth is, it's uh, pretty, dad's wired pretty similarly. And so, and we know each other well, and we've worked with each other in different capacities over time. So that's a piece of it. Um, and I would say I don't have a lot of skills, but one of them is I have a pretty decent EQ. So understanding and reading a room and people and um, where people are coming from. And, you know, I, I believe authenticity is the name of the game. If I were a, you know, a writer, I would write a book right now about the age of authenticity. And so I, there's to show up in any other way and to have a relationship like we do and really a, a sacred relationship is to be authentic. And that doesn't mean I'm always, everything's perfect all the time, but the joy of working together and collaborating that, it, that rings true. It doesn't mean, you know, there's friction over here or a big decision over there, but you know, is it bringing joy and is it cultivating joy? And one of the things I've found is that the more I bring joy, the more I cultivate it from other people. Um, and that isn't my intent or that isn't why I'm doing it, but it does tend to happen. So that's my, my two cents on that. Dad? Well, to me, joy is something that wells up in your heart. You can feel it actually in your heart. And it doesn't mean that there's not conflict or there isn't. If we didn't have difference of opinion, we'd both be asleep. Uh, <laughs> so that part of the deal, I mean, no, it's being, it's a journey. And, and, uh, sometimes one person will say, go right. And you say, go left. So it isn't that it's really that you, somebody is really with you, really with you. I mean, at a, at a, at a emotional level as well as an intellectual level. Uh, and you know, you know, you have the other person's back. So you're in a safe place. That's uh, a safe place that you're uh, dealing with. And um, the indicator or the question you ask is coming in the heart. It's coming, it comes up and you feel it and you know it. And there's hardly anything higher that can, you can achieve as a person. Go ahead, Alden. I was just going to say, but it's worth saying, because um, this all sounds really good and it is really good. And, and I would say, I wasn't ready for this until the moment I was ready for this. So if we had tried to rewind this and do this 10 years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't know that we would be where we are and finding the sort of synchronicity and joy around that. But we are, we are here now. And so timing is a big piece of it as well. Yeah, I could see it. Why, was there anything in particular that uh, sticks out for you in terms of why you weren't ready 10 years ago? Well, I mean, specifically, there wasn't 10 years ago, something on the, an opportunity on the table in that way. But, you know, I, I had felt like it's, it's, it's always a, an amazing and 
complex thing to have successful parents. It is a, it's a blessing in so many ways and it can be complicated for children. Um, even capable, smart, whatever, productive children. Um, and you know, I, on some level had to go through the forest. I went out 3000 miles away (laughs) in a totally different industry to create and do what I wanted to do. And to find myself and to find my flow. And it is with the confidence that that brought that I could come back into the fold and then, you know, into the place that was once my home and, um, and feel like I had something to contribute on my own. So, so that premise of taking off on your own 3000 miles away, was that an invitation from your parents to do that? Or was that a little bit out of like a rebellion? You see, it's like, <laughs> no, uh, I have to like a rebellion against that identity of success and what it was. And I'm not quite sure I know what the success looks like. I'm going to ask Tom soon about what that early success <laughs> looks like. Um, I'm guessing in the context of business, uh, but then also there's family success and then your view through that lens and so forth. Was there a moment where you realized like that there was a little bit of like, mm, this is all great and I kind of love it, but yet there's a part of me that doesn't love it because there's a part of me that really needs to express itself in ways that can't express itself in this context in which I was raised? Well, I would say that I had very specific ideas of what I wanted to do. I wanted to work on storytelling and, and specifically stories that elevate the human spirit. And that was my whole motivator. It was from deep within my core and it holds true today. I'm just implementing it in different ways. So that really at the time, there was no better place for me to go than Los Angeles, which was yes, a far cry <laughs> from the East Coast and from dad's alma mater. Uh, and uh, there's a whole host of stories we could unpack there, you know, if we wanted to. Um, but it was really out of a drive of something I wanted. It was proactive wanting. And there was definitely, you know, it was interesting. I don't share the story very often. I can't can't think the last time I actually told it, but I graduated in 2001. I had a, I had a job. I got a job in 2000 signing bonus, all kinds of fun things. And then the bubble burst and I found myself at home the summer of 2001 when I thought I was going to be starting this other consulting job. And I knew I was going to go back out to LA to try and find a job, but you know, it was unexpected time to be with my parents. Um, as I know, a lot of people actually are finding have found over the last couple of years. And, and that can be, you know, a blessing, and it can be hard. Uh, and so I, I remember, this is very sophomoric of me, but, uh, you know, I said, I wrote it down in journal, it's so interesting, um, because this is what we do, of course, but under big trees, little trees can't grow. And so I wanted to find some light on my own and that's what I did. And, um, but you know, it takes a forest to come together and find real health and well-being for a community at large. And I think that I, I've benefit of joining, joining mom and dad and so many other people's forest out here. Tom, Tom, to use Alden's metaphor, the big tree, I mean, you're obviously the big tree, um, I mean, to some extent in terms of your past and um, I'm guessing a fair amount of success. Can you color in for the listeners a little bit on what uh, your world looked like when uh, you were in the 
sort of that prime of success. I would call that secular achievement success. And then, and then afterwards we can back out in terms of what some of the lessons learned from that. But just to give people a color of what that big tree actually looked like at that time. Well, it was a lot of fun. Uh, first of all, uh, the, I started out in the media business. I guess I ended up there, uh, but at a higher level. And uh, uh, it was a joyful journey, not without many gnarly experiences. Uh, you can't go through something like that without uh, having to use your head as a battering ram sometime. So you did have a bruised head uh, so, uh, at some point, but you also had a feeling of success. But I. I never really felt, you know, self-important. Uh, I guess I don't know how else to say it. I, uh, there, there, no buildings were built, no firecrackers went off. Uh, it was it was mostly what happened inside. Although financially it turned out very well, so I was happy. I guess in spite of of the battles that I went through, uh, and it became evident to me. Uh, when I was about 57, I guess, that uh, uh, the first time, and then 60, around my 65th birthday, I said, uh, I, I burned out on this. I, I've, I've done enough of this. And uh, uh, I, I really had always wanted and had been interested in community uh, through my business, my media business, and through other things I'd done. Community mattered to me, and I wanted to make whatever... I, I was motivated by trying to build stronger communities. Uh, and that includes, by the way, a family. Uh, that's a community also. So I was interested in that, but also in the greater community. So uh, I, I, I was toying with this idea and working on this idea, and that became the new trajectory for me. Uh, and it, it was not in business. Uh, I'd had enough of that, uh, and I was ready to move on. So. That's where I. That's where I was, and uh, seeing the uh, opportunity that we sort of created, my wife and I created together, was again pure joy. Take us a little bit through that transition at sixty. I mean, I, I, I see. I get the impression that you had a pretty significant size media company, and that you were really driving um, an an enterprise of of scale, and then and then this transition to community happened to actually go from that sort of that hardwired sort of business mentality that it takes to drive a business at scale, to, you know, to do that kind of negotiation, to have all those employees and all the platform and all the stuff that comes through it. I mean, to this transition to what you're doing now, or excuse me, it's changed now. And, and I mean, we'll get that uh, to that in terms of what Alden described to me as describing a couple of conversations, how it's more of an operational foundation. Um, as opposed to sort of a grant making uh, foundation, but this has been a process now for twenty twenty five years, and so if you can sort of take us back to what you and your wife were unwinding one mentality and like what transferred over well and what didn't transfer over well, and then how did that path sort of go for that you know the first ten you know ten to twenty years for that new journey? Uh, that's a that's that's a lot to <laughs> answer. Uh, I, I would say uh, the way I describe my life, uh, let's say in my late 50s and early 60s, I, I, I wrote a little paper on it one time. It's called uh, Life on the High Wire. 
you're just up there on a very thin wire. There's a lot of people that like to push you off it. Uh, you had to use balance to stay there. Uh, you had to be acutely aware of your environment. And uh, it was uh, very stressful. And I think that the thing that got to me at the end the most was the stress, just a huge amount of stress. And I, I, I had a friend who said to me, uh, if you uh, go, go over the goal line, don't move the goal line back 20 yards. Uh, and, uh, and I did go over the goal line. I sort of knew I'd achieved enough uh, in, the, in that world. And uh, achieving more might be worse than, uh, than stopping here. So uh, I, I, I turned my attention to something that I felt would be more important to, to, uh, to the world and, and uh, to humanity. And uh, that's when I made that turn. Now, what, what did I take with me? Well, I think the awareness uh, of what's going on, uh, making some assessment about what is achievable and also how are you doing against that achievement? Uh, how, are you, how are you moving against that goal? So that's sort of, again, situational awareness and having some metrics, which uh, come, with, uh, come with the world of business, help me make that transition. Uh, there's another one that I think uh, we started out with a very small business and uh, I returned to that. I said, I don't need to step into a, a, a very large thing. Uh, I, I, I'm very happy to go back to the beginning and start something that might work, but you're not sure at all would. And uh, that willingness to do that was, I think, the, one of the keys to it. Uh, it was uh, lowering your expectations so that miracles could happen. Now, was this concept, um, maybe you guys can touch on it, but um, is the concept now of sacred spaces, was that the intent 20, 25 years ago? Um, you guys were supporting it while other people were doing it, and you were trying to support it in certain pockets, and then eventually did you take it in-house and it became more operational? I'm curious on how sort of that arc has transformed itself and what learning lessons were along the way that uh, that suggested to you that, hey, we should pivot to actually being driving this agenda uh, just as much as we are supporting others as well. Right. Well, uh, about this time, I, I became chairman of a, a fabulous uh, environmental organization called the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Foundation, it's the, it's the largest environmental organization in the East Coast. And that's a big, it was a big task to take that on. And I realized that we're, tr we're, trying, to, we're trying to preserve an asset, uh, the bay itself, the Chesapeake Bay. So it was really looking at the asset, looking at the, uh, at the environmental asset that was there that needed protecting. Uh, but what really resonated with my heart, and it goes back to, the, to a, a number of things that happened in my life that had to do with preserving communities. So the idea that we had was not taking, uh, preserving a, 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 an environmental space that people go to. We tried to really enrich communities by bringing nature to them. And no one else was doing that, that I know of. It, it was really focused on the, the human being and the effect of nature on the human being. And that put us in a very different place, but we weren't sure 
that that would work. Uh, we had no idea that it would really work. We started out um, by by having the uh, community itself uh, be a big participant in the creation of these spaces. That they ended up owning them. Uh, it was their intellectual and, and spiritual, and uh, he just to, to 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 have them continue and be there. And so that was a very uh, unique turn of the coin. And um, I think that's that's how we started out. And that's that's the way it's really stayed, actually. Uh, it's obviously changed in many ways, but fundamentally, that's the core of it. I love that concept of that you were trying to preserve nature. I mean, then the community element was still hanging there for you. And you realize, like, we have to bring nature to the community and where they actually live as opposed to thinking these are going to be places that are visited per se but i two points for both of you alden and tom because i'm guessing there's similarities and differences here who have been your mentors in shaping your ideas around this uh it can be both intellectual uh people that obviously are no longer here as well or different models that you have come to sort of really rely on that feel like they're really addressing the fractured connection between um, the human existence and the natural world? My sort of intellectual uh, North Star as E.O. Wilson, who really, from a theoretical perspective, looked at, the, at, at, at organisms, I mean, of all kinds, he was an expert on ants, but uh, not, but nonetheless, he's the one that saw the connection uh, at the very highest level. And uh, when I when that hit my hit me, uh, it really rang a bell. Uh, so he would I would say he was a definite mentor. I didn't know him. I don't know him. I think he's still with us. I think, but he's written many books, and uh, he certainly helped me put it in context. There's another person who was an environmental um, uh, minister in uh, Sweden uh, who, who, who came to this idea. that He called it the fourth dimension of environmentalism. It was bringing nature to people because now at this time in, in our existence, uh, nature, I mean, that humans are the ones who are really threatened. And uh, especially as we separate ourselves more and more from nature. In cyberspace and uh, and every other kind of space, so um, I would say those two. I'm gonna I'm gonna add one. I, I'll take it, but I, I feel like it's a third one for Dad, which is um, a gentleman by the name of Jack Bloodgood, who was on our board at Nature Sacred when it was called TKF in it from the very beginning. And Dad can do a better job of giving his sort of pedigree. It was better homes and gardens and just very established person. But he talked, when we were talking about the design elements early days, when we were talking about these sacred places and looking at plans and things like that, he talked about the experience of the human. Where is the human sitting? What are they looking at? What are they experiencing? How are they feeling? And that from a you know, not from a theoretical perspective, but from a practical perspective, how does that elevate the human spirit? How does that heal someone? How does that make someone feel safe? And that his work was highly influential to us on creating the model we have now, 
uh, the design elements of the portal to know you've entered someplace new, the path to let your mind meander, uh, the destination, a place to focus your energy and the sense of surround. And that's, you know, giving you a sense of surround and hugged, being hugged by nature, essentially, but having a view out. And what we know now, but didn't when we started, is that that's based on biological evidence. And it goes back to our early humanness of being getting a high perch and seeing out and seeing the lion coming. So if you can see the lion coming, you're not stressed. But if you don't know if the lion's potentially behind you, you're stressed. And so it increases your cortisol levels and all that stuff. Anyway, we can talk more about that. But Jack and his influence, his design influence, still lives on every day in the work that we do. Speaking for myself purely, uh, you know, I have to say a really influential person in my journey around this work actually is, is very different than what dad's is, but is Jeff Skoll, who I think is another Nexus member. And, you know, I had the privilege of, of working with him at participant media and his, his team um, around movement building. And so what are the different pieces in play? What are, what's the individual behavior change, the policy change, how can we connect public, private and um, government dollars and ideas and resources to really actualizing that. There's the concept piece and then there's the push and the energy around um, making that, increasing the awareness and increasing the adoption and all that. So the work that I did there, but, but also just this idea of having sort of inspiring social change in a big way. And it starts with one person with what we call the fire soul, who's our community leader, one community at a time, one plant at a time. And that's how communities can change and come together and deal with conflict resolution. Dad, dad didn't, hasn't talked about this yet, but he's worked on conflict resolution earlier on in his career. And he, you know, did some really exciting things, particularly uh, temporal right now, but with world talk with Russia and America, like how do you bring people with disparate views together. And nature is a real commonality because we are nature and nature is us. And so, um, but, but some of those ideas of bringing all of those resources together to not just take, to just not have this one garden, but to then, you know, make it a, a movement around healing and nature. A couple things stick out for me when you mentioned this idea of the uh, board member talk about the experience of the human in terms of bringing that to the forefront. It reminds me so much of the book, The Pattern Language, which uh, has had a huge influence on me. And here I am, a finance guy, and yet it's probably one of the top 10 books I've ever been exposed to. Um, I feel like it's one of those atemporal, transcendent books that just keep transcending time and space. And the reason why is because it's exactly what to talk about. It's the experience that you're having in an environment because I think my life changed a lot when I became moved from a cognitive model of existence, which is what I was stuck in with uh, being a PhD in philosophy and uh, probably overly trained in waspy thought to, um, to migrating into, uh, and I'll, I'll get to this in a second, the, it, 
my original influence on the natural world. So I was born and raised in the countryside, but I didn't really feel like I was living in nature because I lived on a dairy farm when when I was a kid and always felt like work. Um, even, even though our parents really didn't have a big expectation on us working too much as kids, but there was always work going around. So it wasn't this romantic notion of what I did my dissertation on Thoreau and Emerson. That's a much different con- concept of countryside that uh, they had than what my parents had being dairy farmers in California. Leap forward, and here's where I'm going with this, and I want to ask you, is, is that my big breakthrough came when a friend of mine started taking me out into the wild backcountry. And um, that's when I really, when when the concept of nature and the experience of nature just exploded on me. And when you talk about vistas, that's when I be, just became realized how important vistas were, whether small or big, but big spaces are really important for the, for the human psyche to, uh, to dwell in, in an unfettered uh, manner. How much of your guidance that you go through on a day-to-day basis is merely coming from your personal experience with the natural world and really trusting that your embodied governor is also part of your teaching as well? So I'm asking that migration between sort of the head, you know, sort of the cognitive construct of nature and design and how the secular world thinks about it versus intuitively like how much is actually just coming through your body and your life force um and how much guidance is actually coming from there well i mean there's the personal journey i guess um but then there's you know the work that we do through nature sacred and i would say when we talk about the projects uh, that nature sacred is a part of um, it's perhaps coming through the life force, but it's coming through the life force of other people. So it's the community who desi- decides and has input on that design and what makes that place sacred to them. And so it's probably a mix of cognitive and life force. But, you know, it is really interesting when you ask people questions about when did they feel the most healed in nature or what are those elements it's amazing how many commonalities there are around water for example and swinging or you know being held by a by a swinging chair or something like that so i think it is a mix um and for myself i'm not a designer so i i'm not actually coming at it from design work um but i do think about the human experiences like Will they feel the things we want them to feel when you look at a final design? And and so, as I say, like when as we go through the process, um, when, back when we were a grant giving organization, and now when we're an operating foundation, we see either draft or final designs. And before they actually get sort of final sign off, I I look at them and think about that. That's the biggest thing I think about. Not is this going to win some award, which is great, and some of our sites have. But it's much more about grounding it in the human spirit, because if you do, then I think that's where the magic is. Tom, Tom, you have any thoughts on that? I do. Um, I, I'm going to go back to Jack Bugdut for a minute. A lot of people, with good reason, uh, build their homes so that it is well viewed from the street. And that people, uh, that it's a beautiful artifact from the street. 
this is just what we do is just the opposite of that. It's it, it's how do you feel when you're in it? Uh, and that's the Zen the Zen effect, so to speak. And I give you a specific example. Um, <clears throat> one of our first prison gardens was uh, out in Western Maryland, uh, and it was a brave warden who asked us to do this. Uh, he was he pushed us very hard to do it. And we had a charrette. We brought together six inmates and uh, six staff. And I, it's the only of the 150 more or less gardens that we've done, uh, sacred places we've done. It's the only one I was ever in a charrette. I didn't think I should pee there. But this was too tantalizing. So I was in it. And we had this magnificent uh, architect from from San Francisco who, who led it. And he asked us all to close our eyes. And we all closed our eyes. And when this warden who closed his eyes was a very short fellow, right next to these enormous inmates, uh, that's what I'd call courage, uh, and no guards anywhere. And he asked us what was the most sacred place we'd ever been in. And we thought about it with our eyes closed. Thought I thought it was uh, three or four minutes, about 30 seconds. And uh, we opened our eyes and we told. And it was interesting. Every single person in that room said something about water. So I, I think that's, that's uh, the, the key to it, uh, is, is getting it in, in people's hearts, souls, and minds uh, to, to, to have something come out that is common, and we built that whole space around that idea. Take me through this idea of, because I'm not quite sure I really understand it. I think I understand it conceptually, but what's it like on the ground to go from being a, um, maybe I'm not using the right language, but a typical foundation, grant-based foundation to an operational uh, foundation? What's the look and feel of that difference, and why does it matter? You want me to take that one? Sure. You're doing it. So, uh, <laughs> well, I know I can speak very well to the operating part. Um, so, you know, as a grant giving foundation, you can decide to meet however many times you want to meet or have as many rounds of grants you give a year. In our case, I think we had one round a year um, and we would sit around, uh, we would go do site visits and read applications and the staff would sort of assess which were the best suggestions. And then from those suggestions, the board would decide which ones made the most sense for whatever the criteria was. Uh, well, there was some standard criteria, but every year it was a little bit different, depending on the scope and all that. Um, but the pace, I would say the biggest thing is the pace. The pace was slower. I think there are probably some foundations that work at a pretty decent, some grant giving operations that work at a pretty decent clip, but by and large, uh, the pace is slower. And as an operating foundation, we are bringing, so we had to, in order to do that, I mean, I think that's part of your question. You got to meet with a lot of lawyers, a lot of tax people and figure out some of the real operational elements of that. And, uh, you know, we brought in a bigger board and so there's more people and ideas and infrastructure around that. And then we are offering sort of technical assistance. And what that means is that we are much more advisors more often. We're taking and soliciting incoming calls. It's a combination. So it's 
the biggest thing I would say is the pace difference. And that we, and because I'm looking at this as, you know, movement building. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting in uh, December of 2019, one of our new board members and I were on a phone call and he said, you know, I think we're going to have to really work on the urgency around this. Like we know why it's important, but why is this work urgent? I said, gee whiz, that's a great point. I had, I, I hadn't even started full time. Um, and I was like, this is going to be one of my big priorities for 2020 figuring out what's the urgency. And then COVID hit. And, you know, there are just a lot of horrific things that happened in that process. Um, but one of the things that was, I would say, a silver lining is that people recognized whether they had access or not was a different question, but recognize the importance of nature in our lives and close by accessible nature on a daily basis. And th that is not an amenity. It's a necessity. And really it's a, it's essential to our well-being. I mean, if we think about the food we put in our body and the air in our lungs and, you know, sleep at night, it's also about, you know, the, how nature can heal us. And so, um, urgency became, uh, no longer a big question, you know, as we get, further out, I think relevancy, it's always relevant, but how do you sort of keep that piece on? But because of then combined with the access piece that there are so many people that don't have access to nearby nature until, you know, everyone is within a few blocks of walking to nature or something, having trees out front, the job isn't done. I'm not saying they're all sacred places, but the job of, of integrating those things isn't done. So, um, Really, the difference I think is is pacing. There's some structural things, uh, but by and large, just like anything else, actually, it's about uh, agency and size and scope and of how you, of how a leader wants to wants to take it. And it was really a. I mean, we talk a lot about how Nature Sacred is a 25 year old startup because it was really a. I mean, because it was you know we have these materials, these incredible sacred places. But so much of what we're doing now is really different and at a different kind of pace in the way it's done than um, the 25 years before. Tom, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think as long as we were a grant-making foundation, it was great to test the idea. And, you know, it took us a very long time to test it. But um, if you really want to put it, is this thing ha have legs to it? then you turn it to an operating foundation because there are many more actors. And the idea will either ha fly or it won't fly. It really has legs or it won't le have legs. Uh, when you really put it totally in the hands uh, of the public, uh, the funder, the, um, uh, you know, the designer, the community, and uh, people have, they're, they're coming to us now uh, in much greater numbers because of that, and we were limited in scope to the East Coast largely, and now uh, it's happening all over the country. So we've opened it up in that way, and um, uh, I think there's much more excitement because it, it's very much, the whole idea is uh, a public idea. So this all seems so obvious that we should have this everywhere, uh, 
you guys are on the ground and the boots are working and traveling and uh and yet what is the pushback like why wouldn't this be everywhere and kind of a no-brainer <laughs> what's making this so difficult of course we like sitting on benches under trees and listening to a fountain and walking in a peaceful little gravel driveway and or, or you know a little walkway to get there with colorful flowers that are blooming in the spring who wouldn't want this in their neighborhood who wouldn't want this by their hospital who wouldn't want this anywhere in their city or their suburbs and so forth well i would say that it's it's not that people don't i don't think the resistance is around desire it's around our sort of holdover so many people talk about this as a nice to have an amenity an add-on the last thing i mean if you think about you know someone who's building a new house they're going to build the house first and all that and then whatever's left over, if there is anything, goes into the garden or the grounds or whatever the case may be, as opposed to thinking about that first or at the same time. Um, I think that things are changing. Um, I think, you know, we, as, a, as in 2012, started doing research around this the way we knew we were onto something in the early days is in each one of our sacred places is a signature bench and tucked underneath that bench is a waterproof journal. And people started writing the most extraordinary things, things that they weren't telling other people that, you know, deep sort of secrets, but that they were willing to share anonymously with the community um, proposals, things about grief uh, it really, you know, beautiful pictures, like it really ran the gamut. That's how we knew qualitatively that this mattered to someone and someone other than us when we had this sort of wild idea, as, as dad said, started over again, like, will this work? Is there a there there? That's how we knew. But we also recognized that decision makers and and being sort of business people the way we are is that bottom line, like, what is it? What does it cost? What are we get want to get a, get for an ROI? And so that's really when we embarked on starting to do research um, in 2012, and had the great joy and privilege of working with a, a variety of folks, you know, from NIH to uh, Walter Reed Medical to um, University of Chicago, Cornell, etc. And so, in working with those folks, taking different looks at it, um, were there's a body of work that's building. There were some before that, but really since then, and not because of us, we were just a part of it. It has exploded the research around that. But I think it really comes down to capacity because the other thing is it's easy to just, or easier to call up a landscape architect and say, go build me something really quick. But when you get a community involved, that takes time, that takes intentionality. But when you do that, and you do it well, the community then takes care of that which they helped create. And so, you know, there's this thought or fear that, oh, nobody will take care of it or it'll be too expensive. And, and there are some real things around maintenance. You have to pay attention to that and be thoughtful. But as long as you're thoughtful on the onset as to how you do that, it really can be baked into the whole process. And so, um, your question is, you know, what's the, what's the hurdle? I think it's time and I think it's money and we are doing what we can to address some of that. 
And we actually have uh, a health calculator that's coming out quite soon for healthcare campuses. It's specific to healthcare campuses, but it's based on evidence-based research, peer-reviewed research, et cetera, that of the cost of burnout, which of course we can all relate to, but particularly physicians and nurses and staff there um, can relate to burnout. What's the cost? So there is a bottom line cost to every healthcare campus in the country. And if you put in a sacred place or a green space at X amount, it's just pretty easy, some things to fill out. You actually are going to save this much because of reduced uh, mistakes and any other reduced churn, all of that. So once you start to put our hope is that once you start to put it into dollars and cents, um, it's where the science meets the soul that we're going to have the most impact. It's very well put. I. We've touched on a lot of angles, but before I close, I want to give uh, Tom and Alden, um, is there anything that emerged um, in this conversation that, um, that you know, deserves some expression and that felt like it was just, it was there, but I navigated in a different direction. So I just want to give you the opportunity to close out with any final thoughts that may have bubbled up as a result of this um, emergent conversation that uh, we've all had. Well, I'd like to say just something about joy, because um, I think you your poignant question got me to think about how you measure joy. And I never have ever, ever thought about it, really, uh, uh, cognitively or spiritually. or And, and uh, we just finished a, a garden uh, in the middle of a cemetery in, uh, in Washington. Uh, DC. And uh, this garden had very different communities that were within it. And what we did is we brought those communities together, some of whom had no recognition of their history. Uh, and this garden was finished. And I happened to be there the day it opened. Uh, and, and this woman came up to me <laughs> and uh, tears running down her face expressing the joy that finally somebody had used nature to heal this rift that was in this community. And I never forget it. Uh, I never will forget it. And I think that that this conversation today uh, helped me re, uh, resurface the, the wonder of, uh, of joy in our lives and what this uh, connection has done. Yeah, I think... Uh... It's true. It was it was an interesting question. I thought about what my heart my heart was actually doing and fluttering when I have that moment of joy. But I think, you know, the only sort of end note I would share, Gino, is uh, that there is great possibility and potential when you can meet a family member, certainly a friend and all that. But in terms of the intergenerationality, but if you can meet a family member as a partner, as, as dad shared at the beginning and find that commonality and do it in an authentic way, the force multiplier on that is incredibly profound. I have had the great joy and privilege of working with a a few extraordinary people in my career who I have awesome partnerships with. I mean, that really accelerate things. And, uh, those have been, that's what I thought was the highest bar and working alongside my parents in this new endeavor, as we launch this 
operating foundation, this sort of, as they say, 25-year-old startup, the impact, the possibility, the productivity, and um, ultimately the, 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 the end result is far greater, far faster, by far farther and far greater than I had anticipated. And so um, it's, it's, you know, not everyone gets a chance to do it for a whole host of reasons. And not everyone says yes when asked, but it is, uh, it is very much precious time. And each day, each interaction, um, I, I notice, I spend just a moment in each real interaction with my father or my mother around this work, noticing that this is a special moment and that um, what that's putting back out into the world is the pixie dust. I love ending it on pixie <laughs> dust. <laughs> that's right. I love it. So where so where could people find more about the, uh, the organization, your guys' work, Alden? Uh, naturesacred.org on the web or any of the social media platforms we have uh, we have different handles so we invite invite people to share and learn and um, subscribe and be a part of this movement and bring nature to you and to your community definitely look them up folks they're doing um, amazing work um yeah it's just it's it's super impressive it's it's a heavy lift it's a special lift uh, their community-centric focused uh, or focus efforts is much different than sort of a top-down mentality. Um, I'm just starting to learn uh, more and more about what they're doing. Uh, some of you who've been following me know that I'm also involved in community resiliency. And it's interesting that I think Alden and I connected around the reality that um, unless you uh, find ways to get this to work on the ground and have the people vested in its success, uh, that will help alleviate a lot of other issues downstream. Not only alleviate issues, but also insert a level of life force that you can't do from a corporate headquarters agenda mentality uh, that will never be able to do it. So on, only people can insert life force, especially when it feels like it's aligned with their existing values and preferences and, and will. So uh, with that, amen to uh, Tom and Alden for uh, doing for doing the spirit work. Thank you. It's a great joy to be here. Well, thank you so much for helping us share. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.